Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. What is freedom? Sure, we all have the basic concept of what it means to be free in this country. It's our constitutional right, after all. But how has freedom been defined throughout our history? And by whom? What happens when one person's definition of freedom infringes on the freedom of others? That's the topic Vanderbilt historian Jefferson Cowie takes on in his book, Freedom's Dominion, A Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power. He joins us later this hour. But first, it's time for Add Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I am encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville and on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. I love being in the studio with you because it just means we're one day closer to the weekend. There you go. (laughs) I like your style. So, Well, you know, instead of talking about our weekend plans, do you want to talk about Titan Stadium? Okay, perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. All right. So we're going to start the praise from Senator Charlene Oliver, who tweeted that guests M. Simone Boyd, Odessa Kelly, and Miriam Albufazi, quote, gave a corporate welfare masterclass, end quote, during last Thursday's show, highlighting community concerns about building a new stadium. Senator Oliver also went on to say, quote, I hope every council person takes time to listen to the entire interview, end quote. That's quite the praise. Mm-hmm. But also on Twitter, Mary wrote, quote, wow, listening to a piece on WPLN about some powerful woman speaking out against using tax dollars to revamp the Titan Stadium when the owners of the team could pay for it themselves. These women are who we need in Tennessee government. On the flip side, Dan on Twitter also weighed in saying, quote, this isn't a pro or anti new stadium stance, but two thoughts I've had this week. One. Delaying the vote feels silly. And two, the anti-new Titan Stadium side just hasn't been very persuasive, even if the points are good and valid, as evidenced by this episode. Well, we appreciate that comment. You know, it's been pretty clear from our vantage point that the new Titan Stadium plan is not super popular among Nashville's constituents. Our listener, Melissa Cherry, shared our episode last week in her Instagram story and wrote, quote, Until last week, the approval of this deal was discussed as a foregone conclusion. When community members got to speak on This Is Nashville, the lobbyists and institutional cheerleaders had to start answering the real questions, end quote. That's actually really cool to hear. Mm-hmm. Getting answers to these questions are, is so important. We'll certainly be following this closely over the next few weeks. You know, one question that has come up over a few of our listeners is that, you know, what will happen to the stadium when the state takes over the Metropolitan Sports Authority? Well, this is one question we actually don't have an answer to right now. Mm. We didn't really go into this in either episode, but there is a bill that if passed, it would vacate the current sports authority here in Nashville. So if it does pass, then the mayor, governor, and the speakers of both the House and the Tennessee Senate would be able to appoint new members. 
Earlier this week, State Senator Paul Bailey from Sparta told Adam Friedman from the Tennessee Lookout that he sponsored this bill because the state's because the state will contribute five hundred million dollars for the new stadium. So Senate Bill one three three five is headed to committee right now, mm-hmm. but it's just one more wrinkle in the stadium debate. All right. Well, okay. switching over from the state to local politics during Tuesday's episode about the mayoral race, Jeff Obafemi Carr tweeted us saying, quote, flipping through channels, catching the last bit of Miss Rosetta Miller Perry on with Steve Cavendish being honest about how most of the current mayoral candidates are unknown in the black community, but need our votes. This will be a deciding factor in this election, end quote. He would definitely have insight on this topic because Jeff Obafemi Carr actually ran for mayor during the 2018 special election. Mm -hmm. But after Tuesday's show, um, our listener Alejandro weighed in on another comment by Tennessee Tribune founder and publisher Rosetta Miller Perry. Alejandro tweeted at us saying, quote, one of your guests said that the next mayor of Nashville should treat the city like a business not a nonprofit. And I think that's the sort of mentality that led to the housing crisis and worker deaths. We need a different mentality for Nashville and Tennessee, end quote. What Mrs. Miller Perry did say is that she wants to see a mayor with business experience, but she also added that running a city is more akin to managing a business instead of a social service. Yeah, I can definitely see that point of view. Now, before we wrap up, we received a tweet from Charles about what happened to The Moth, Radio Lab, and other shows that WPLN used to broadcast at 7 p.m. So, what did happen, Anna? Well... We are officially started airing This is Nashville at 7 p.m. every weeknight. Nice. I like that. Yeah, so it's for the people that can't listen at noon because, you know, lunch. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, we're really excited about this because, you know, a lot of people can't listen. So this just opens another window each night. Of course, you can always catch us on podcasts on Spotify, Apple, or, you know, wherever you listen to us. But what about those other programs? Yeah. The good news is Moth, Radio Lab, and all these other shows aren't going away. We still carry them, and you can now catch them at 9 p.m., so right after Fresh Air at 8 p.m. We're also updating our schedule at WPLN.org, so bear with us. Okay, Anna, I know we're not going to let listeners go without a request, right? Of course not. Hmm. Next week, we're bringing you the latest Citizen National episode where we collect your experiences, questions, and round up resources you need. And this time it is about allergies. Bless you. (laughs) And hallelujah. Okay, if you have allergies like some of us or the rest of us, write to us at thisisnashville.org. That is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Thank you for this roundup, Anna. We'll see you soon. Of course, and y'all know where to find me online. Don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram, and let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey to let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It's super easy and quick and helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, Vanderbilt historian Jefferson Cowie joins us to talk about his new book, Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. Stay with us. This is Nashville. Khalil Ekelona. 
And this is Nashville. Politicians of all party affiliations love to use the word freedom in their speeches. It makes sense. The word gets the crowd riled up and is almost guaranteed to garner applause. But what are they actually getting at? Does everyone in that crowd think freedom means the same thing? What about when one person's freedom interrupts or steals the freedom of others? Vanderbilt University historian Jefferson Cowie takes on those questions in his book, Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. In it, he explores the history of one place in Alabama, Barber County, the birthplace of former governor and segregationist George Wallace. In the book, Cowie draws parallels between the anti-federal government clashes of the distant past and the culture wars of our present day. What questions can we learn from looking back? It's a big task. Fortunately, Professor Cowie joins me now to discuss. Vanderbilt historian Jefferson Cowie, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me, Khalil. Happy to be here. Really a pleasure to have you here with us. So, you know, talk to me about why you decided to write a book about freedom. Where did you draw that inspiration from? Well, you know, it's the American creed, as you were suggesting. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's uh, cited by everyone on every dimension of the political spectrum. So it's yet it's also an elusive concept. And Americans have this sort of sensibility that they own freedom. They're the only ones who have freedom. And I began to spin this idea around and I began to realize that other people didn't have the same idea of freedom that I had, that I enjoyed. And uh, uh, in fact, some people's idea of freedom kind of scared me. So I began to sort of pull it apart and see what I could find inside uh, this uh, kind of uh, big term that contains so much of American ideology. You know, one of those main themes of the book is the idea of freedom for some people includes the ability to oppress others. That's vastly different from the common notion of freedom where we all believe we have the right to do and live as we wish. Tell, tell me, where does that oppressive concept of freedom come from? So, yeah, that's the core of the book. Um, but I also want to, for our listeners, just be clear. I, I kind of use freedom as a, as a using this uh, framework that a, a historical sociologist named Orlando Patterson uses. Uh, See, freedom is a three note chord and those notes are kind of the first two notes we we readily understand it's civil first one would be civil liberties mm -hmm. the bill of rights that kind of freedom the second one would be the freedom to participate in our political communities the right to vote these kinds of things mm -hmm. um, but the third one is the one that he really is i'm became fascinated with and that was the the freedom to oppress others and he traces this and i trace this all the way back to uh ancient societies. Uh, we look at uh, Greece as the birthplace of democracy and the birthplace of freedom as we know it. But we often forget that that's also a slave society mm -hmm. and that the definition of freedom emerged in a tension with the very fact of slavery. And then to be free was not just to be not enslaved, but it also included the capacity to enslave. So I am free to enslave others. And therefore, and there we have that tension you're, you're talking about, the clash between my freedom to enslave and somebody else's freedom to be not to be a slave. 
Yep. Fast forward a few th- a couple thousand years, and we're in America with mm-hmm. this very same idea. Mm-hmm. And um, so talk to me. How has this idea of freedom, how has this been expressed in the American South specifically? Right. So the, the American South is key here because there's two elements that I look at. One, this is a settler colonial society, which means uh, settlers came in and took over the existing lands uh, of other people. Uh, second, it's a chattel slave society, a uh, place where people owned other human beings to do uh, the labor of mostly cotton, but other commodities in the South. And so if you take this con- this idea of freedom to oppress and you put it in this situation of settler colonialism where my freedom will be expressed, say, to take land of others, mm-hmm. and you put it in the context of my freedom to enslave others, then it becomes very virulent, very powerful. And so this freedom to oppress becomes central to the American South. Um, and I would say, actually, to the U.S. as a whole. And we can talk about the relationship between the South and, and the rest of the country, uh, maybe as we get further along. Oh, yeah, we definitely will. Now, you know, <laughs> in the book, mm-hmm. you trace the history of Barber County in Alabama, why was this one county on your radar? Well, it's, I was looking for a way to tell this story, right? And I, and I kept thinking, what, how can I look at this idea of freedom and not just paint a big canvas about American freedom? Because it was too, too messy. And I wanted to explain why American freedom was always in uh, an ongoing tension with federal power. And that's in the, uh, that's in the title of the book white resistance to federal power. And so I began to think, well, maybe I need a single place to do this. Like, how does one place define its freedom against federal intrusion into their rights to dominate others? And I was just sort of thinking about this for several months. And then we happened to be driving down to the Gulf Coast and I stumbled across Barber County and uh, its main town, Eufaula, and I just became absolutely uh, mesmerized by the place. And I could tell that there were my sort of historian spider senses went off. And I could mm. kind of tell that this this is a place with a story. And I really wanted to dig into it. And ironically, it wasn't until months later I realized George Wallace, the segregationist governor of Alabama, was from the county. And that's mm. when I knew it was fate. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me what it was like when you visited. Oh, when we drove in. So, uh... We, this is, I was teaching up at Cornell University at the time, and it was literally 20 degrees below zero. Uh, and yeah. so we, we, we decided to get, get out and get down and get some sunshine. And we got off the freeway and we drove down. And, and when you drive into town, it's this beautiful two-lane boulevard with uh, lovely trees arcing over the boulevard and these antebellum-style mansions on either side of the road. And it has this full kind of moonlight magnolias uh, antebellum, gone with the wind feel to it. Um, and then you cross the tracks and you get a different story or, get, or you, you cross the center part of town, you get a different story where, uh, it's a little more, it's much more rundown and there's mom and pop places and whitewashed windows and stuff like that. But, mm-hmm. but so you can sort of see the tension right there. And I, uh, as we drove through town, I, I turned to my wife and I said, uh, look this place up. What is this about? I, I didn't know anything about it. I'm not really a Southern historian. And she says, well, I don't know, but according to Wikipedia, it, they didn't have their first integrated prom until 1991. Mm. And I said, wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That, 
There's a story here. Yeah. I'm going to dig into it. Yeah, yeah that's my senior prom year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> very interesting. So, okay, so George Wallace, the segregationist governor of Alabama, was born there. That that kind of tells you a lot about this county, huh? That's right. Um, and George Wallace was, above all things, an historian of Bar- Barber County. He loved to read about the history of the place. And so the, when I, uh, the first thing I did as, a, as an historian, of course, is trying to go back to the beginning of, of, of the place and not get too seduced by the Wallace uh, tale, because it's, it's a fairly well told. He's got some good biographies and, and, and things like that. So I went all the way back to the founding of this community, this white settler community. And it's there on the banks of the Chattahoochee River. This place is right on the border between Alabama and Georgia in the southeast corner of Alabama. It was there that every theme that I wanted to explore just sort of just emerged as if foretold. It was amazing uh, in the story of the original settlement and the stealing of the lands from the Creek peoples, the Muscogee Creeks. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, continue. I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I was just, I was going to tell that story, but you, you tell me what you'd like to hear. Okay. Well, you know, in, <laughs> in your, in your book, you explain why some Americans are resistant and sometimes hostile toward federal power. Can you tell us how that played out in Barber County? Sure. I mean, that's the theme. So if my freedom to dominate uh, is central to my idea of how freedom works, the threat to that freedom comes from the federal government. And that's another key theme I wanted to get at, is why do Americans have so much suspicion, so much hatred uh, toward federal power, uh, especially uh, in the South and I would argue the West as well. And so we could look, for instance, at the initial settling, uh, settlement. Uh, a, there was a nine-county area that was known as the Creek Nation, you know, to set aside for the Muscogee people. Mm-hmm. And um, that was supposed to be protected under an agreement with Andrew Jackson. Well, these white settlers kept flood, floating in and flooding uh, this area. And so Jackson, whom we think of as the Indian removal guy, and he was, and he was did some very, very, very bad things, in this particular case, actually sent federal marshals and federal troops in to remove white settlers from this land and give it back to the Creek people. And so what we see, in fact, the initial, in the 1830s, the initial uh, interface between local white settlers and federal power was when uh, the federal marshals burned central buildings of the the white community down and kicked everybody out. Hmm. So what we see basically is they argued back, this is our freedom to own this land. Uh, the federal power came in and said, no, 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 uh, this belongs to the Muscogee Creek people, not to you. And they kicked them out. And so you see the complete nexus at that moment of white freedom to own this land up against Creek treaty rights to actually own this land and federal government coming in and suppressing white freedom, Hmm. the freedom to dominate that land. And this goes on through Reconstruction and 
the Jim Crow era and on into the modern civil rights era. I want to touch on those in a minute, but, you know, Andrew Jackson is one of Tennessee's favored sons. And as you mentioned, we're all well aware of his undressed treatment of indigenous people. How did you feel as you were digging into his involvement in Alabama? It was fascinating because, uh, yeah, obviously we know that Andrew Jackson essentially pushed Cherokee, Choctaw Creek all out of uh, Tennessee and Alabama and, you know, did vicious, vicious things uh, to indigenous people. He signed the Indian uh, Removal Act uh, to push people further out uh, across the Mississippi. But I kept reading about these stories about him sending in the federal troops to protect Creek rights at this particular juncture. And so even people who read this in manuscript couldn't quite accept that Jackson was actually protecting Indians in this particular place at this particular time, Mm. right? It's very specific. And it's really part of his long-term plan to get them out. Uh, It was essentially he set up a privatization scheme to get the Native Americans to own individual plots of land that they would sell, and then he would get them to move west. But in the meantime, he was actually protecting them. So it it was cognitively very difficult as a historian to write a story that goes against the main grain of, 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 of who Jackson really is, I think, in a lot of ways. And, uh, but really doubled down on the idea that local history mattered in this case, right? You, you, and th- this is a tension that historians face. You can tell this macro tale, this national story. But what's going on, on in the little tiny spaces and these struggles and these identities on the ground? Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour with Vanderbilt historian Jefferson Cowie about his book, Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. We want to hear you, how you define freedom. You can share your ideas by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. So, you know, you're telling us about this illegal white settlement on Creek lands that was forced off by then President Andrew Jackson. You know, how tell me this. How did Jackson's actions truly exacerbate people's feelings of resentment toward the federal government? That cuts right to the essence of the problem, right? Because white people elected Jackson because they wanted land and they they saw their freedom as in. Uh, the sort of great Jeffersonian tradition of land expansion, access for American yeomen to own their plot of land in what was then the West. Um, And then Jackson comes along, the guy they elected to be the champion of the white man. And this is really when white people had the, white men had the franchise uh, regardless of income or class. So this is sort of the white democratic moment. And he goes against them. And this becomes an enormous uproar uh, and to the point that uh, Alabama turns against Jackson. The governor, who is a Jackson man, turns against Jackson. Uh, there are uh, skirmishes, uh, a big important story of a martyr who gets shot by federal troops. And this is a very dramatic story um, to the point that People are talking about secession in 1834. Mm. They're talking about leaving the Union to pres- specifically to preserve their idea of freedom. 
and this you know this is uh the drama of this is is is, is truly incredible you know that resentment it's just it's something what parallels do you see with anti-federal government rhetoric we hear from many politicians on the right these days yeah the parallels run very deep um and and one of the key things historians have to be careful of is what we call presentism, which is seeing too much of the present in the past, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's a professional pitfall. We have to always be on guard for that. Um, but in this particular case, I just see the word freedom and liberty constantly mobilized against federal government because the federal government is going to come in and take away our powers. So whether it's restricting voting rights or uh, gerrymandering or whatever it is, retaining those local powers is an expression of local types of freedom against federal government. When they stormed the Capitol, they invoked freedom and Confederate flags and all that kind of stuff. Um, So we see a pretty tidy arc all the way from the beginning of what I'm talking about uh, through Reconstruction, which is another bloody tale, uh, all the way up to the present day. Okay, what what about those the current political climate here in Tennessee? How does that parallel? Yeah, so one of the most complicated dimensions of this is how it sort of uh, graphs onto the cultural wars questions that we see so often now from abortion and now the um, you know the drag show stuff and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But again, um, there's a sense here. Sometimes the federal government, but really I think that the, 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 the dominant national culture it feels to many people like it's intruding upon their traditions, their values, their freedoms. And, and here you'd think, well, freedom would suggest I can do whatever I want and dress however I want and be whoever I want and get whatever medical services I want. Uh, but there's this deeper tradition uh, that runs all the way back that says, no, because that intrudes upon my sense of who I am, my freedom, my capacity, my ability to dominate my surroundings. Mm. You use the word dominate. That's the key word. Yeah, um, it is. Um, yeah, the, the, the freedom to dominate um, is really central. It's that third pillar of that or the third note in the chord of freedom that I mentioned earlier on. And this goes, you know, uh, almost ubiquitous throughout uh, the the history I tell. And even when you get to the Civil War, you know, we think about uh, the, the, the Civil War as, uh, you know, we, we know that story as, a, a, as the story of a, a regional war over slavery. But the way locals frame the argument about secession in the 1860s, was they needed to resist the tyranny of federal power. Mm. And the tyranny of federal power was going to come in and take away their capacity to enslave. And this sort of, you know, this very kind of American revolutionary rhetoric, just like we saw, say, at the Capitol uh, insurrection, this kind of uh, connection to core values in American history, all the way back to uh, 1776, emerged in the 1860s. And these people say, we're fighting for our local freedoms to dominate others against the tyranny 
of federal authority. And, you know, the first thing they do uh, is in Barber County is uh, burn Abraham Lincoln in effigy because mm-hmm. he is seen as a new form of aristocratic power that is going to dominate their rights. Mm-hmm. Okay. Again, you have to remember these are rights to enslave. You know, what's interesting to me is are these rights solely given to them from the Constitution or are these rights kind of mixed in with their faith at the same time? I mean, we talk about politicians are pressured to say, God bless America. They talk about the God given rights that are written in the Constitution. I'm wondering how those two kind of relate. Yeah, we we often see, this, and, and this pops up uh, with some regularity in my book, Freedom's Dominion, that um, the federal government is taking away our God-given liberties and whatever they might be. However, it's a very malleable plastic category, whatever our God-given liberties are at any one time. But you uh, you, you, you see this throughout. But, but the constitutional structure actually, especially before the Civil War, uh, the Reconstruction Amendments, basically says that uh, the states maintain tremendous autonomy from federal power. And it's really constructed in such a way that it, uh, uh, around a fear of too much centralization of authority in Washington, D.C. And so really what we see is uh, Congress shall make no law abridging your rights. Mm -hmm. That means the states and local authorities have the political uh, authority, the police power to control those uh, rights against federal power. So Madison called this the compound republic, that there are going to be local, state, and federal levels of power and thought this was going to work very smoothly. But in fact, I think this conflict goes all the way back to the constitutional era is one of the most profound problems in American uh, history and really defines much of American history, that tension between local, state, and federal authorities. Now, let's pick up, pick up on the timeline where you talk about the post-Civil War era of Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Briefly, tell me, what did the country look like then? Wow. Um, so the Civil War begins to preserve the Union. It ends with 4 million people being liberated from slavery. Probably, you know, obviously the greatest moment in American history. And the question on the ground in the South was what rights, what power, what capacity do these newly freed people have? And what limits will be put on the freedoms of the former power structure? Um, at the time. And so through a complicated series of laws and struggles and things like that, uh, what ends up happening is a a military occupation of the South with tremendous use of federal force Mm -hmm. to uh, the the famous federal bayonets um, going down there and essentially ensuring a biracial democracy. Now, the old, old history was that this was this enforcement of federal power was a mistake and it didn't work and uh, black people never should have been given rights. But now in the last 40 years, we've clearly learned that Reconstruction was actually a, a moment of tremendous flowering of a biracial 
uh, democracy that required aggressive federal enforcement. And, um, and so what the white power structure had to do was decide how will they react? How are they going to react to having federal troops enforcing the democratic values of the country? Mm-hmm. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Vanderbilt historian Jefferson Cowie on how Jim Crow and the civil rights movement impacted our current political climate. Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking this hour with Vanderbilt historian Jefferson Cowie about his book, Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. In it, he traces the history of Barber County, Alabama, and its belligerent definition of freedom and how white grievance engendered resentment and resistance to federal power. Professor Cowie, thanks again for being here. Very happy to be here, Clue. This is great. So, you know, talk to me. As the country shifted from the Reconstruction period to Jim Crow, how did the federal presence change in Barber County, Alabama? Well, yeah, as we left the story uh, before the break, uh, we had federal troops occupying much of the South and enforcing black political rights. And so the, uh, the white people in the South decided to push back in a variety of ways. They tried political maneuvers and all sorts of things, and then decided in Barber County in November of 1874 that they would use violence, mm-hmm. uh, that they'd had enough, and that they had been, in their terms, oppressed by federal power. Their rights had been given over to black political activists. And so... Uh, as black voters lined up at the polls in November of 1874, in unison, uh, the local people of Ufala, Alabama, pulled out guns from all over, from shops and back rooms and mm. out windows and everywhere, and opened fire uh, on hundreds of people lined up to vote, shooting probably about 80 people. We don't, it's hard to tell exactly what the number is. Yeah. Uh, and a similar coup took place in, in the northern part of the county. And these violent takeovers happened all over the, the South. And this coincided at a moment when there was a certain exhaustion about federal will to continue to pursue uh, this sort of radical reconstruction. Because there'd been, you know, uh, four years of war, uh, another nine years of, of um, occupation, uh, things, there'd been a massive um, depression in 1873. People kind of weren't willing to put forth the willpower necessary to enforce, uh, strip white people of what they saw as their freedom and back up the political rights of the freedmen. No. And so this collapses. In the book, you talk about J.W. Comer, a plantation owner. You know, you know, tell us what he did and the impact it had. Yeah, J.W. Comer uh, was uh, one of the biggest planters uh, from one of the biggest planter families in the, in the county. Uh, and his story is uh, 
long and dark. Um, uh, he he tried to uh, first tried to bribe uh, the uh, poll watchers uh, into overthrowing the 1874 election uh, before the massacres happened, and then um, went on. Uh, after he had, uh, af- after whites had reclaimed their, their their freedom and their power, after eighteen seventy four, he went on to become a kingpin in the convict labor system, in which a sort of neo slavery emerged, in which black people would be rounded up on charges, trumped up or completely false, thrown in jail, and um, and then their their contracts sold to guys like Comer who would then um, send them up into the convict mines to mine coal mm. uh, and later make steel up in Birmingham. And this was some of the most horrendous working conditions ever dreamed up in American history. Uh, people who never saw the light of day, who lived in horrible conditions, um, just um, one historian called it slavery by another name, but in fact, it, slaves were actually a precious commodity that people took care of to a certain extent because it was an investment. Mm-hmm. These guys, they could die and nobody cared. They could just go down to the jail and get a new one. Well, well t- tell me, where was the federal, where were the feds during this time? Right. So this section I call the federal government in repose. So after mm-hmm. the 1874 coup, they basically pull out uh, and um, they no longer have the will. And this is kind of... This is the period roughly up until the New Deal period in the 1830s that we see this is what happens when the federal government is not there. It's not only not there, it's not really a threat. Mm. The South is on its own, um, and they kind of know that the the federal authorities are going to stay out. And this is when we see uh, convict leasing that I just talked about. We see lynching. We see the rise of the segregationist constitutions that are written in the 1890s and the first part of the 20th century. Um, Some of the most brutal, oppressive regimes of the post-bellum world uh, emerge during this time when the North has basically said, you know what, we've had enough. You know, this... This makes me think about the importance of federal governments and, you know, guaranteeing the rights and freedoms of its citizens, which at the time, the, as you said, the, the federal government was not doing a good job of. Couple that absence with the increased power of state and local governments in the South, and it creates this separatist philosophy about freedom and who gets to have freedom. Tell me, how did that belief in the Jim Crow South influence people like George Wallace? Right. Um, well, you've, I really appreciate you've nailed the core theme of the book, Khalil. So uh, thank you for that. Of course. Um, <laughs> the, um, this idea, uh, the combination of the local capacity to dominate, that freedom to dominate, and the threat of federal power, which is sort of in the, in the imagination, kind of always on the hillside, bayonets drawn, ready to descend on, on uh, local white people, uh, always played in the political imagination. And so George Wallace is an f- incredibly interesting character. And he, he starts out as a sort of generally progressive um, white Southerner. Uh, I use that term advisedly, progressive. Uh, he, he's not a race baiter or things like that. Mm-hmm. And then, but then after uh, um, Brown versus Board of Education, he, in 
1954, he begins to see that what's where the rubber is really going to meet the road is federal resistance, a resistance to federal power, uh, because federal power is going to come in and upend race relations locally. And so we have Wallace essentially makes his entire career less as an overt racist, which he he plays that card. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But what he really does is resist the incursion of federal power in local circumstances. And he becomes known locally as the fighting judge because he fights federal uh, uh, oversight over elections in the 1950s and things like this. And when he's finally elected, uh, he gives this very famous speech. Oh, yes. uh, Where he says... We've got some of that. Here's that clip from Wallace Wallace during the 1963 inauguration as Alabama's governor. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Now, those are the words cited so often from that speech, and you can hear the response that it got in that moment. But there is, of course, a lot more to that speech. Here's part that comes almost immediately before the famous segregation declaration. It is very appropriate that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom as have our generation of forebears before us done time and again down through history. Let us rise to the call of freedom-loving blood that is in us and send our answer to the tyranny that clanks its chains upon the South. Wallace actually uses the word free or freedom 22 times, but he only said segregation three times. What did he mean when he said freedom? He was expressing the deepest and most powerful strand of this sort of uh, grassroots resistance to federal power. Uh, that goes all the way back to that first story we we shared mm. when those uh, white settlers uh, were kicked out of Barber County in in the early 1830s, and it's 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 amazing when you think about it, right? He the the word segregation is used a few times, but the essence of that speech is really freedom and resistance to federal tyranny, and that does important work. Because you're going to get the racists with the idea of resistance to federal power Mm -hmm. and freedom from federal power. That's easy. But now you get the moderates. You get the people who don't want to be taxed. You get the people who uh, have all sorts of grievances against the federal government. We all have grievances against the federal government. And now you have a coalition. You're not just fighting a narrow definition of race, but you have it's in there. It's baked into freedom. But now you can go big and you can even go national. And the other theme of that speech is that he's already looking across the nation and he talks to the people of the Midwest and the people of the New England and the people out West Mm -hmm. and says that they share that same sense of freedom that Southerners do. So we've reached the civil rights movement. How did the progress there exacerbate the resentment toward federal the, the federal government? Right. So uh, this is, you know, essentially the second reconstruction. You have federal troops, excuse me, federal power coming into the South, whites riled up against uh, 
federal power and black people really looking for a kind of national citizenship, a federal citizenship, not a state or local one, right? They want, they want federal power. You know, we, we, we think about things like the march across the Selma, uh, the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, famous moments like that. But those moments are to get federal legislation and to get federal authority. And the Selma march in particular was to get voting rights. And where the sort of scales fell from my eyes on this project was uh, there were in 1965, they're, they're trying to get the, the Voting Rights Act uh, passed and they finally do in August. And there's a, a, a an organ, Martin Luther King organizes a uh, thing called SCOPE to get people registered to vote. And his key lieutenant, a guy named Hosea Hutt, uh, uh, Williams, um, is, is studying the voting registration returns that he has uh, going into the 1966 midterms, which will be the first midterms that are backed up by the Voting Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to figure out why some counties have a lot of voters registered and other counties don't. And he says, well, this county has a really good red, uh, campaign and good, li- good leaders. Why is not it have more people? And finally, he realizes that the counties with the most uh, highest numbers of registration were ones with federal registrars mm. present in the county. And so we're back to that same idea we saw earlier uh, with Native Americans, with Reconstruction, is that the f- presence of the federal government made all the difference for African-American people and their rights, and the absence of it meant everything for American, white American freedom. So, okay, so bring me up to the present, our current political environment. How do you see these grievances playing out in something like the Capitol riots? Right. Um, Well, Wallace, just to sort of make the arc from from the past to, to, to Wallace, I mean, from from Wallace to to the to the present, um, he he plays a, a pivotal role in sort of reimagining a kind of uh, populist, anti-statist uh, f- version of freedom that eventually gets taken over by the Republican Party. He runs as a Democrat for the most part mm-hmm. and believes he, he's a Democrat, um, and and he's a, a, a key figure in the whole. Um, reimagining a politics up through the 1970s, 1980s to our, our, our present day. And in, in the book, I end with uh, um, uh, Mo Brooks, uh, who is, uh, represents Alabama's 5th District up in northern Alabama, actually. He's not from Barber County, um, where he is, uh, he's the guy who's up there doing the Save America rally mm-hmm. uh, right before the rallying the troops while wearing uh, body armor mm-hmm. um, and saying, you know, American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass uh, today. And um, when he came, when he was criticized for this uh, kind of belligerent, militaristic, uh, uh, jingoistic kind of politics that led to the insurrection, he said. I encourage every citizen to watch my entire rally speech and decide for themselves what kind of America they want, one based on freedom and liberty or one based on godless dictatorial power. Hmm. And 
That's straight out of Wallace's playbook, right? Okay. Um, and Wallace's playbook comes straight out of local history. Now, the Tennessee state legislature is making all kinds of global news with the, you, you talked about this a little bit earlier at the top of the show, anti-drag legislation. It's rejected millions in federal funds for health care and education. How are these actions related to the history in your book? I know that's a heavy question, and I'm only giving you a minute and a half to answer. I apologize about that. <laughs> no, it's a it's a great connection. And so this longstanding fear of what federal power can do, and we saw this actually going all the way back to the New Deal. If federal monies and federal power can can change what's going on on the local terrain, that means they can, they can also take away our freedom. And as... Uh, Many people have shown through their research that the, the fear that federal power in whatever guise, even healthcare, will upset race relations on a local level and restrict white freedom to dominate others uh, becomes, puts its tentacles into almost every question. And, and, and I think the way you frame that is exactly right, from drag shows to, to, to declining uh, funding for medical uh, support. It's insidious, right? Mm. And this is the legacy that we we have to struggle with. Um, and I think um, begin to open up a conversation about the nature of American freedom and the nature of federal and the importance of federal power. It's like a time and opportunity for our democracy to kind of evolve. So there's this balance between the states, federal government. That. That's right. Yeah. And, and I actually think that that, you know, uh, the tradition of states rights that goes all the way back to the founding of, of, of the Constitution is uh, something we really need to think about um, when a group like the Freedom Caucus, which is the most conservative wing of the Congress, uh, uh, uses that term freedom. I, I, I think that's a problematic uh, uh, thing. Mm -hmm. I want to thank my guest, Vanderbilt historian Jefferson Cowie, author of the book Freedom's Dominion, a saga of white resistance to federal power. Professor Cowie, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I had a good time. Yes, as did I. And we hope you had a good time. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we get on the 18 wheels. We get them going and we learn about the life of truck drivers in our city. This is Nashville. It's a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Tony Gonzalez. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.